Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com and find them at FDIC at booth 2540. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash Flex 7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced Technology, only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. TheFireStore.com, equipping protectors with passion. That's how they operate, and it's how they live. They understand that having the right gear can mean the difference between life and death. Their goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it at prices you can afford. Visit them at FDIC at Boots 110 and 111. Welcome to First Do Battalion Chief. I'm Danny Sheridan. Tonight again, I'm joined by Tony Carroll and uh, from retired from D.C., now with a fire department in Virginia. And I forgot the name, Tony, so you're going to have to forgive me. Um, <clears throat> and First Do Battalion Chief, uh, I decided a, a while ago that I want to bring this back to the, the true name of this, which is First Do Battalion Chief, and talk about battalion chief stuff. So. Uh, that's why I brought Tony along. Anyway, Tony, welcome. Good night. Uh, good evening. How's it going? Hey, uh, good, Danny. Thanks for having me on again. So, um, just uh, you know, I was just at... to clarify, just to clarify things. I'm from uh, Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm in Louisa County, which is um, Louisa. in the Let middle of down. Virginia. We're kind of yeah, we're kind of between Richmond, uh, Charlottesville, and Fredericksburg. So right in the middle there. Okay. I I promise you I will not forget it the next time. So, um, you know, I was listening to the uh, to our sponsors. We have uh, Magna Grip, Tenacat, and Firestore. And uh, you know, I was thinking of, like you were talking about the bunker gear. Did you did you have bunker gear when you came on, or did you have uh, the the, the three quarter boots and the the, the coat? Yeah. No, definitely when I started as a volunteer, yes, uh, three-quarter boots, long coat. Um, I don't know what material. I guess it was Nomex, right, back then. And then, um, you know, it was probably seven, eight years uh, before we got into bunkers, before we got into pants and stuff. Yeah. 
I remember a buddy of mine, Frank Simpson, we both went to 17 trucks, and he got, he had a rubber coat. And uh, I oh, think wow. it was mine. Mine was a, mine was a TC4, I think, or something. I forget even who made it. Jeez. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, you know, the bunker gear, just as a, as a FYI, I, I'm reading a book. It's called Five Floors Up. It's the story of Bill Fian, who died, who's our, our deputy commissioner, who died on 9-11. And, uh, you know, it's his kind of history in the fire department. And in the book, they were talking about how the bunker gear came about in the FDNY, and it was the result of a fire we had on Watch Shoot. And I huh. think it was 1993 yeah. or 94. So, um, it, was, uh, yeah, it was tragic. We lost uh, Chris Seidenberg, James Young, two firemen, and, and um, Captain uh, John Drennan, who lasted like 40 days in the uh, burn center with extreme burns. And you know what happened at that fire? Um, <clears throat> I, I read the NIAS report on it. And what had happened was it was a building that was probably built in the mid to late 1800s. It was a two-story. Yeah, it was definitely built in the, you know, that's like the older part of New York, like the lower West Village, you know. And it was built, I think it was probably built like we would call like a federal house, which you would see in D.C. and you would see in Philly and Baltimore. Like a very small attached uh, private dwelling, which was probably converted into a multiple dwelling, but you know what? You know what struck me about the report? I kind of was reading into it. There were two chimneys, right? So the, it was locked up really tight, and someone had left a uh, a bag of garbage on the yeah. on the stove, right? So so it's, it's definitely a ventilation limited situation, right? But what I thought about was that. The chimney in the living room was, was like, open, even though it was limited. It was very, you know, it was a small space, but it was still giving it enough air, to, I guess, not to go all the way into, like, uh, total uh, decay stage. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, yeah. unfortunately, what happened, it was just a, you know, we talk about uh, the Swiss cheese theory when all the, the holes line up and, you know, like... Right you know, a disaster happens. I think that's a true case of the Swiss cheese theory because it was just a whole series of, like, just things going sideways. And unfortunately, you know, the captain went onto the floor above with the two guys, and uh, when they opened the door, they just got caught in that flash hole. You know, it just it just blew out and went right up, you know. So, and, uh, you know, right after that, we got the bulky gear. Yeah, so and, that uh, was you know, um, it, that was eight, that was eighties, right? Late eighties. Um, the Drennan fire? No, I think it was. Let me think. Hold on. I was still a firefighter. I was working in Squad Forty One, and when I got there, I know for a fact I got there in ninety one. I was wearing rubber boots and uh, the the, the three quarters coat, and I think I think Brooklyn got the bunker gear first. I think, and then we got it like in the summer of of ninety two and ninety three. Because I tell you, I remember, I remember what happened. I wasn't used to it, and it was a very hot summer June day. 
and we had I'd come in, and I'm sitting in the kitchen like I always do, drinking coffee, and we caught a uh, a fire over in um, up in the Bronx, top floor fire, and I remember climbing the area with the with the saw, and I had this monkey gear on, you know, and I didn't hydrate at all, and it's like 90 degrees out. And this is the first time I'm wearing the bunker gear, right? So I'm climbing the aerial. I get up to the roof, cut the roof, whatever I had to do. And our rig was an old Mac. It was like a 91 Mac. Um, and the, the engine, like the, the engine was, ex- it was extremely hot inside the rig. And I remember we took up from that fire and then another fire, they turned out another box on the other side of the, uh, in Washington Heights. And we just immediately went from that fire right to the next fire. And I remember I got up on the fire escape and um, I got to the window to start, you know, taking the windows and venting. And then I don't remember anything after that. I passed out on the fire escape. Oh, wow. I just, I, I had just exhausted myself. Like, you know, like I just, I mean, it was, I'm telling you, it was like one, it was the first like really, really hot day of the summer. And I had been drinking coffee all morning, no water, you know. And now this is like going from one fire, getting in the rig, driving whatever, four or five miles to the next fire in this 200-degree, you know, crew cab, and then going up the fire escape. And you know what the embarrassing thing was, Tony? Back then, social media was not a big deal. Someone actually filmed it. And I, I watched myself pass out on the fire escape. I was mortified. <laughs> so, anyway. So uh, I thought back. So anyway, then, I, I thought that I, you guys. I thought that back when you got the gear, because of um, of uh, the new gear that you guys had, like a, you had an hour or something after a fire, to stay out of service, and uh, rehydrate. Was that not? Is that not the case? It probably was, but being that with the company that I was in, you know, we just went. You know, we just went available and went to the next one, you know. It's just, you know, it was a squad. So, like, you know, we weren't, yeah, yeah, we weren't no, going to take an hour, <laughs> you know. And uh, and that was probably not even the case back then because this was, like, when we first got the bunker gear. It was, like, the first day that we had it, you know. So. I was anyway, there's a few I went, things I, I went to out. Chicago. I, w- I went out to Chicago. Yeah. It's probably been... It's probably been what uh, eight years, maybe, and they had just got the stuff. I mean, I was some, they were probably yeah, they like got the last late. ones to hang on, right? Yeah, them in Boston, I think too. I think Boston got it later on too, right? Yeah, I think that I I, I I don't know if they were later than Chicago, but I was surprised to see. And again, you know, they were really um, they were really having a hard time, you know, adjusting to the new turnout gear. Yeah, you know, I, I think the the gear it's like a double edged sword, right? Because you can go deeper, you know, you can do more, but you know, the old gear, I mean, you can only go so far. I mean, you get in, and sometimes your ears. Like we didn't, we didn't even have a hood. I mean, my I used to keep my my coat open, and sometimes my top buckle would get so hot it would burn my neck. And um, you know, the boots only came up. If I if I remembered to pull them up, half the times I didn't even pull them up, you know. Yeah. And uh, you can only go so far. I mean, let's you know, listen, we're human beings. You know, we're not robots. 
Yeah. And, no, uh, there's definitely, uh, like you said, double-edged sword. There's places, there's places this gear can take us that we probably shouldn't go, but you know, we, we, we every time we go to these places, we find somebody with a chance to survive. So, I don't know. It's tough. Right. That's what. Yeah, that's what that scares me. Like I, I did an experiment when we first got it. <clears throat> I had this fire, you know, and I said, let me try putting my hood up, and I know this sounds ridiculous that I'm saying this because we're supposed to do that, but this is, a, you got to remember, we just had just gotten it, you know? So I said, let me just put my hood up, let me put my glove, you know, everything on, put my chin strap, I mean, everything. I had my uh, collar, clothes, everything. And I went in, and I tell you, Tony, I, I didn't take anything off until I got in the street. It was, I felt like I didn't even, I wasn't even in a fire, you know? Like, there was no yeah, no, no feeling at all. And um, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I look back on my career. I mean, you know, the times I got burnt. You know, I mean, with uh, embers and hot water going down my boot and burning my knees and all that stuff. You know, I mean, we used to get burn injuries like crazy. You know, like every fire. You know, we'd have guys come yeah. to the burn center with, in, with burns in their knees, you know. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I remember one fire I had when I was lieutenant. And, I mean, it was so hot that the carpet, when I when I got back down to the street, the carpet had melted to my bunker gear, you know. I mean, yeah, no, I've, I've been no there. Way. Yeah, you definitely come home with, yeah. with stuff. Yeah. I mean, and there's no way I could have done that thing. What I did at that fire, I could not have done with the the old gear. It would have been humanly impossible, you know? <laughs> so, yep. Anyway, um, so uh, there's a few things I want to talk about. Maybe I could start with the other thing and then segue into what I want to talk about. But um, I was going to talk about it last time, and I didn't. And I wanted to talk about the safety battalion, the safety chief's role at a fire. And that's another double-edged sword, right? Because if you're right, you look like an all-star. And if you're wrong, you look like a, well, I didn't want to talk about what happens if you're wrong. But, you know, I know safety, if I, if you look at the incident command model, right, they don't even work under anybody but the incident commander. You know, they're like supposed to be kind of like out of the, the ICS, right? And, they're not supposed to make decisions, but they make suggestions, right? And <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, you said that you had done that job, right? You had been a safety officer, Tony. Yes, I, I spent um, a, a couple of years as our shift safety officer. Right. Yeah, I know. Like I it know was, it was good. Life. I liked it. I definitely I liked it yeah. because um, it got me to go to every fire in the city, right? Um, Right. It got me to go to every one, and um, I was definitely not going to be um, the safety officer who was in the command post with the chief, right? I was going to be, I was going to be in the hot zone, and you know, trying to take a look of, of, of what was what was our people, what our people were facing, and you know, if we need to make some changes. Um, I mean, it was definitely. Um, I got into a lot. I got into a lot of, of, of fire area, not not. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say I was at the nozzle, but I was definitely in IDLH. Um, was that was that the right spot? I don't know. I mean, it, it helped me to kind of see what was going on inside. 
Yeah. I, I think that the see if you're going to a fire and I've I do sometimes go as a, a safety officer if it's like a second alarm or let's say a, a high rise fire or something. And it's kind of like all right, so the burden is off. Like you're not responsible for any tactics, you're not supervising anybody. Your sole job is to go there and be like outside looking in and just see things from a different level. Like, you know what I mean? Like I, I remember I had one, I was a couple of years ago now where we actually had a May Day and it went, it went very well because the May Day was resolved very quickly, you know, but you know, you just see things differently. Like, you know, like I remember the, I had one of my engine companies and they, they were on air and they were in the IDLH. And if they had just backed backed up about 10 feet and went down the stairs about a half landing, they could have, you know, they they could take them their, their face pieces off, you know, and be ready to go instead of using up all their air in the IDLH, you know. And it turned out that that became very fortuitous because, you know, the first engine was now out of air and uh, they needed relief. And, you know, it was a May day. It was a fireman, firefighter missing. So, you know, but being the safety chief, you have that kind of luxury to do that because you're not worried about, you know, what's the searches, what's going on with the fire. You're there solely to just be there for the safety of the members, right? So in that respect, I think it, it's good, right? I think what I've, I've run into once in a while is where I think that the safety chief may be, and I know this, I, I sound sounds crazy that I would say this, but maybe a little bit erroring too too much on the side of caution. Is that a good way to say say it, you know? Um, I don't know. Um, yeah. But then again, if you're wrong, but then if I disregard what the safety chief is telling me and then, God forbid, something goes wrong, then I, like like Ricky used to say, Rick's got a lot of explaining to do, right? Because <laughs> then they'll say, well... So, I don't know. I have, I, I, I've been. This has been weighing heavy on my, on me for like the last month because I had an incident, and I feel like, you know, I'm not not like you're trying to be like uh, irreverent, but at the same time, I wasn't ready to give up this whole building. You know, I mean, I, I, I saw it whole differently than the safety guy saw it. You know, and I, I was, I've been really like. I, I'm I, I'm saying to myself, oh my God! Like, what if I was wrong? You know, like, what if I had so, maybe I was being, yeah. So um, that's a good that's a good point, and I guess I guess what 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 you need to think about, I think, <clears throat> and I, I do this now because I was in the safety role, and then when I got out of the safety, right? Because our our safety was a captain. Now they're battalion chiefs. Okay. But I was the captain in the safety role, and then I got promoted to battalion chief, um, and I was a you know an operations battalion chief. So I'm thinking about like what do I want my what do I want my safety officer to do when they show up? I don't want them, you know. I, I and I I had this one time my uh, when I was in the safety office, I went to a fire. It was a pretty good fire. It was a it was a two story, detached wood frame house. Fire was on the first floor that extended to the second floor, and it was going pretty good. And um, we had um, we had a firefighter who entered uh, he entered a window from the second floor or into the second floor, and he actually like his foot went through the floor, but he didn't. He, there was no there was no um, 
there was no you know urgent message given or anything like that. But but um, so so it was like I said, it was good fire. And then at one point there was a mayday because of a um, a, a new young firefighter and her officer got got separated. So. Right. Um, you know, I'm trying to clear that up. I was actually on the front porch when that came in, and you know, we it was it got cleared up pretty quick. They found the member, and then um, so because it was a big fire, like um, some of the off-duty chiefs who were staff chiefs came back, and my boss, who was the um, he was the deputy chief of uh, risk management, he showed up, and when I when I got to him. You know, I was like, hey, you know, what, what, what do you got? And he was like, oh, I got some step chocks, some wheel chocks. Some, some people didn't put down wheel chocks. And I'm just thinking, I'm like, man, mm. you totally missed the point, man. There was a mayday here. Right. We had, uh, right. we had some, some miscommunications going on, and you're worried about that? So I, I know mm. personally if I'm the chief on the scene and the safety officer comes, I don't, I, don't, I don't want him to come up to me and tell me that the guys didn't put down the wheel chocks. Or that they don't have vests, yeah. or that the pump operator doesn't have right. a helmet on. I want them to tell right, me, right. "Hey, look, you're losing it in the back, you know." Or, "Hey, look, it's extending to the to the delta exposure." I want them to give me those right. kinds of life threats. I don't care about the other things. So then, so then that's important because then when you get a shift to work overtime in a safety office, now you can apply it to be, you know, the safety officer that you would want come into the scene. What do, you, what do you think, and I'll give you my spin on it, and hey, before we go any further, by the way, let me, let me do this, because in case on the billion and one shot that someone wants to call in, I'll give them the number. <laughs> it's 760-454-8852. 760-454-8852. So um, what I was going to say, Tony, is as a safety chief, right, and you're responding you know, like I, I have an idea. I don't, I don't do it much, but if I was safe, I know what I would be looking for. What are some of the things that you're looking at? Let's just give an example of a two and a half story, private twelve, fire in the basement, peak roof. Um, what do you, what, what do you, what are you looking for? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you what I think. So fires in the basement, and um, right. I want, I want to make sure. I want to find out if there's a way for the for the crews to attack it on the level that it is, right? Okay. Staying, staying away from – if they can stay away from taking the interior stairs. So, um, okay. you know, okay. that would mean – that would mean a completion of a 360, identification of, uh, of, you know, other access areas, other places they could get in is initially. And then, um, temp, you know, then I want to see the – that they that the tempo is is appropriate for for the firefight, and then you know I want to make sure that the the ventilation doesn't get ahead of the suppression. So you know we're not we're not we're not doing any outside venting too soon. We'll make sure that there's water on the fire, or if they're um, if they're going to make an entry, like do a you know do a, a VES or a window initiated search, that um, you know it's not going to impact the firefight. So if they're going to go to the second floor and make entry, you know, make sure that they're isolating when they get inside and that kind of thing. So, but I, and you, I, and I you would do this as a safety access. chief? Yeah. Uh, Tony, I, you would do this as a safety chief? Of. These are the things that I'm wow, thinking okay. of. Okay. Like, like wow. what's my, what's I like on it. my, 
what's on my thing. Unfortunately, though, is the safety chief is probably not going to be there in time for these things. Right. But those are, right. you know, if I'm there then, those are some of the things that I want to, I want to see that they're doing, and they're not putting themselves in those positions that could be bad. Yeah. Some of the, some of the things I'm I'm thinking about is that um, I'd want to ascertain whether there's lightweight construction or not because I've done that before where I've come in and asked that question about 15 minutes into the into the fire like is this lightweight and the answer was yes. Um, I'd like to see if there's any window bars or any kind of obstructions that they've removed. I'd like to make sure there's an adequate amount of portable ladders. Um, another thing that I, I want to make sure is that the stairways, like especially on the upper floors, if they're going to the, like, the, let's say from the first floor to the second, or if there's attic stairs or even the basement stairs, that they're not cluttered. That's, that's my biggest pet peeve, and I think that's where the safety chief can really, really have some value, where, like, we, we just keep those stairs, like, being like a traffic cop and keep them clear, you know? And, you know, Absolutely. another thing, too, is that, yeah, and another thing I was thinking about is that, um, you know, any companies, like, you might not have these problems in the other areas because you have the Mattydale or the Preconnects and you only have four lengths, so you're not, you're not going to overstretch. But, you know, we have sometimes uh, issues where, like, we can have too much hose, you know, and then, or we can have too many hose lines in one staircase, you know, and these are all things that can lead to, let's say, Kinks, which reduces, you know, which is increases the, uh, the the pump needs to pump harder, and then you know, burst lengths or kinks re- could, you know, just re- reduction in water in general. So, you know, I, I think there there really is a lot for a safety chief to do when he's coming in. It's not just like like you said, like let's make sure the door the chocks are down on the wheels, and let's make sure that the guys wearing their vests and you know, everyone's in there, proper PE. Like, there's some really some serious stuff that, because, you know, you know, you and I both know that when you get involved in a firefight, sometimes, you know, you, you get this kind of tunnel vision where you, like, you know, you have a job to do and you, like, you don't see sometimes the, the whole picture, you know? And I think, I think that's the beauty of, like, albeit the safety chief or the, um, even just any officer just to take a step back and to make sure that like, you know, like people are, you know, being safe, you know, like, you, you know, take a bigger outside look, you know? No, you're right. I mean, that's the nice thing about the safety chief is that you're not, you know, you're not committed to a company of three or four people. You're, you're kind of, you know, you can get that, can get that overview of the whole scene. And, uh, you know, can impact it that way. I know, um, again, I know, you know, one of the shifts that I worked on, the uh, the the shift commander wasn't really, you know, I, I think he thought the safety officer was really just, um, once he, once the safety officer showed up on the scene, that meant everything was safe, right? And I don't, I don't know that they really understood the role of the safety officer. I know um, I had an incident, um, it was a collapse, at the Watergate, you know, remember that was where uh, yeah. Richard Dixon got into trouble. Mm-hmm. Was at that hotel. Sure. So we had a collapse there. There was uh, there was some landscapers wow. were were uh, were putting in some some trees in a planter, which was over top of the parking garage. 
and um, the this this big big you know piece of of a concrete it was you know it was a big piece fell into the into the parking garage, but um, you know and I got there as as a safety officer I was really concerned about a secondary collapse, and um, oh sure you know the command post the command post was in was in operation there was uh, search operations going on and we hadn't really got a good primary search yet. And I remember, um, you know, I was doing my job thinking about the overall scene, and the incident commander was like, we're not stopping. He's like, we haven't, we're still in rescue mode. So I think that 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 really made me understand kind of that that juxtaposition that that the safety officer could be in, right? And there's competing things going on, and the incident commander, he was a strong incident commander, so I got the message, you know, look, I appreciate what you're saying, and... And it's 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 a received, but the mission is, you know, to, to to save to save anybody that could be trapped. So we're gonna we're gonna you know we're gonna go forward until it becomes a uh, you know really a, a, a risk benefit problem. You know, I was I was I, that like I said that was an eye opener for me. Yeah, where where do we draw the line? Now you're talking about life. Now when we talk about property, right? I mean. How how much risk do we take, or, or is it perceived risk? You know, that's that's more of a maybe more of the question, right? Because um, I don't know. I I think honestly, you know, like we're we're tasked as the fire department with saving life and saving property, you know, and you know, I don't know. I mean, how aggressive do we do we get when it becomes you know, or you know, saving property, or is the answer is like, well, this is, it's just property, and we, you know, it's not worth getting anybody hurt. You know, that's that's what I struggle with. What's your thoughts, Tony, on that? I I I do, and I think that um, you know, we have we have a responsibility. We, we've told we've told the uh, citizens that we will risk our lives to save their lives, and we will also take some measured risk to risk to save their property. So I mean we have to we have to do that we have to find a way to do that and um, you know I, that that's where that's that's a our risk that we will take is all is a is a uh, kind of a sum of our training our procedures our resources right and I, I've seen that now like when I when I was in D.C. with we had 40 people on a on a box alarm you know so the risk was kind of uh, kind of low because we had lots of resources lots of water lots of firefighters and I think the risk was was a you you could take a lot more risk you could pin your ears back and really go for um, you go for I'm not gonna say go for broke but you could take a little more risk than where I am now where you know I got two guys on a rig and and they're 10 minutes apart so I mean it it varies right it varies what risk what risk is and I think that we have to take a risk you know, we like I said, we've 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 said we would take a risk. Now, um, property. You know, I think that if we're if we're going downtown and, and it's uh, it's it's a mall on fire, I don't know. You know, there's not that, that's that's different than if like than like um, the old mom and pop hardware stores on fire, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I find that there's difficulty in that, but um, there has to be some. You know, I, th- I think it goes back to risk management. I hate—I'm not going to say I hate the word safety, but I think it's more about 
you know, managing that risk and understanding that, that we, we kind of said we would take risk. Now let's uh, mm. find a way to manage it. Yeah, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, in hindsight now, looking back 37 years ago and when I came on, you know, and I'm sure in D.C. it was the same where, you, you know, we had lots of vacant buildings, you know. I mean, and I think I, I think the Chiefs knew that the buildings were really solid. You know, it was like this old dimensional lumber and these floor joists are like two by tens. And, you know, it's just solid. I mean, just, you know, brick. And, and you know, we used to... Um, if we could, you know, if it was one or two floors of fire, you know, we'd, we, we would just stretch and, and go in with the fire out. And, you know, and, and I could I could vividly remember, man, it's so funny, like now being a, a chief, but I remember going into like a burnt out tenement building, five stories, and walking on the sides of the, the stair, staircases because the, the treads were gone. You know, it was just the frame. And, you know, like in holes all over the place and just, you know what I mean? And like going into a bathroom and worrying about if the the bathtub is going to come crashing through, through the floor, you know? And we did this on a regular basis, you know? And then until the point where it got to the point where like, okay, I think it's time to back out. We're going to go to the towel ladder. So back then, you know, I, I guess part of the difficulty for me is that I grew up in this culture of like just interior attacks, no matter what. Like we never, we were not quick. And I think the reason why the Chiefs did it, and it's different, it's based on construction, right? And I'll talk about frames. But when it came to like a tenement or an H-type that, or, or even a brownstone, that the Chiefs figured, well, if we go in and we attack it from the inside, the fire will be out in about 20 minutes. We just have to overhaul we'll be out here in about 45 minutes as opposed to setting up the tower ladder and then we're going to be here for like three hours and we're taking all these companies out of service, you know? And yeah. as a chief today, <laughs> there is no way that I would, I would be doing what they did back in the eighties. You know what I mean? It's just, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know how to, I don't even know how to describe that. You know what I mean? It's just like, I, I just, I've, I've seen, I, I mean, we had so many, I mean, I spoke about it actually when I did my keynote, right? I mean, all the near misses that I've been involved in, I mean, collapses yeah. and God almighty, I mean, and I swear I thought it was normal. I just thought like, okay, well, this is just part of it, you know, like, I mean, they had a, they had a collapse. It was pretty, it was pretty well known when I came on a job. All the old timers talked about it during the war years. It was called the Jennings Street Collapse. I think like 25 fighters were involved in this collapse. And some of the guys even drowned in the basement. Like, I couldn't even picture, I couldn't even imagine putting people in a building like that today. You know what I mean? So, I mean, and I don't think we had safety chiefs back then either. I don't think there was anyone showing up as safety back in the 80s, you know? But again, I, I think I'm going to go back to the same question is that where do we draw the line, you know, from being overly cautious and then, you know, like not doing anything and just standing outside and letting the place, you know, we'll just get it from the outside to where do we have a reasonable responsibility to go in 
and try to keep it to like uh, you know a room or two, right? I I don't know um, what you know what the what the, I mean I guess the expectation of of the homeowner or the the public is right. I I, I can't imagine that it's that we should you know go into this dilapidated old building and uh, right you know uh, where we know that where we know that there's nobody in. But I mean the problem still comes back, which I mean a lot of these fires start by somebody being in there. So. I mean, it's definitely right. a, um, it's definitely that scale. Um, I, I, I go back to, um, you know, there are. I, I don't think there's a there's a type of construction. I know you were going to talk about construction. There isn't a type of construction out there that we won't go in, right? Except for, except for, right? I mean, all type one through five, we'll go into all of them. Now, there's there are some some degrees of that, right? With with 30, a 50, or a 100, or 200 year old building that's been that's been uh, empty for a long time and is falling down. We probably shouldn't go into that one, right? Now that, that doesn't mean again that we're saying don't go into don't go don't go into vacant buildings. We're saying don't go into these that are that are really bad shape. You know, if we won't go in, if we won't go in and train in them, we probably shouldn't go into them if they're on fire. And I, I know there's some buildings that I won't go, you know. We would go into a lot of vacant buildings and, and, and practice. There's some that I wouldn't go in. Right. And I probably shouldn't go into those and fight fire. But how do you, how do you write that into yeah. a procedure? <laughs> right. You know, you said something that was just struck a, like a, a memory for me. I had a um, – I haven't had many fires in vacant buildings as a chief. I mean, I've really had very few, you know. But – I remember I had this one, and it was a brownstone. It was a two-story, was it two-story, three, well, including the basement, it was three stories, you know. And the fire was in the basement, and I was, I don't know, man, I was just being very protective, man. I was like, guys, you know, I want you to go down the Bravo side, and I want you to hit it from the, the windows and the alleyway, and I don't want anyone going in there because I know the place was just a, a, a drug den. I mean, it was just full of holes, and, uh, you know, we wound up getting – extension to the floor above and we had a, a shaft in between two buildings so I was getting reports of people trapped in the in the in the delta in the building. And uh I was just very, very cautious, right? And um you know, we put the fire out and then I, I sent uh one of the special units in to go to the floor above, like some very, very experienced guys to just give a look, you know. And then uh I think we came back again for another fire like a week later. And then they went back a third time. Right, and I wasn't working, and I saw it in the. It was actually made the newspapers. It was two fatalities up on the top floor, but I think they had already been predeceased. I think they they had. There's three of them. I think they would they would drug over those doses, you know. But I think I want to backtrack a little bit. I want to circle back to something because the reason why we used to go into those vacant buildings a lot too is because what you just said. I, I can't tell you how many people I found living in these vacant buildings. Like they'd be holed up in a an apartment somewhere with a with a keep me warm fire and crack pipes and passed out on on the floor in in uh, needle covered floors. You know what I mean? Like so, it wasn't out of the question. You know, even though they were vacant, doesn't mean they were unoccupied. You yeah. know, and I think that's. I think that was part of why we were pretty aggressive in these buildings because 
You know, I think you're right. I think if it was just a straight-up vacant where, like, you know, it was missing all the floors and no fire escapes have fallen off the building, I think the Chiefs were probably more inclined to uh, set up the towel ladder. But I think uh, because of the, you know, the it was known that these buildings were being used by even homeless people. Like, you know, I you found yeah. families in there, you know, living in them. You know, they, they run the electrical cords through the windows, and they have hot plates, and yeah. they have, uh, you know, all kinds of whatever. So I think that's part of why we, we were very aggressive in these types of buildings, you know. So anyway. Yeah, I, so, I, you I know, agree. Speaking I of which. And they were, yeah. they were pretty solid buildings too, right? They were pretty solid. Solid. Whether, yeah. I mean, even if they yeah. were missing a, even if they were missing a, a board or two, they were still very solid. I mean, yeah, you could you could even get on the uh, roof of those for you know for a while, and um, and yeah, it was a solid building. Now, now, I mean, we're going to get into some points now where some of this lightweight construction is going to become vacant, like like this. I mean, I know, um, you know that that's what's going to start happening is more of these more of these cheaply made buildings are going to start to become the vacants that we we were introduced to in the late 80s and early 90s yeah that's you know unfortunately i don't have like i don't have a lot of experience as a chief in vacant buildings and i have probably less in lightweight like the only thing i'm i'm really learning about with lightweights is anything it's just what i read you know i've only had less than a dozen fires in a lightweight building you know what i mean like i don't have and most of them have just been content. Like, they don't really kind of not getting into the structure. Like, you know what I'm saying? So, um, but I think that the lightweight, I think, is going to be a game changer for safety. You know? I think, especially, like, like reading the building, like, and where the smoke is pushing from. Because you got to imagine, like, I saw this in Chicago. I just did a class out there about a month ago out in the in the Chicago area, and... They had these, like, six-story multiple dwellings that were all wood. And there was brushes in between the floors. And I'm thinking to myself, like, yeah. this can't be possible. Like a wooden <laughs> multiple high-rise multiple dwelling? Like lightweight? Yeah. Like, really? I mean, I definitely think, but, but, I mean, with it being that hall, it had to be sprinklered, right? So I think you have that in It your was favor. sprinklered. And... Yeah, so you got that in your favor, and then you probably have some pretty good um, fire stopping or, um, you know, most of that stuff is covered up now. I don't think you're going to find a whole lot of unfinished areas in those buildings. Now, I will say that, you know, those those are the fires that we're getting nowadays, and they're becoming more challenging, but, um, yeah, the concealed space fire, I think, is definitely the new, the new um, what, what most of the new, these new firefighters are going to be fighting as opposed to, you know, rooms and contents because of the sprinklers. So it's going to get into these void spaces and, and run run the place. Yeah. Well, you know what, Brannigan? Brannigan says, he says, fires that get into void spaces can break out with lightning speed and kill more firefighters than collapse. And I agree because this one particular building that the, the guys took me to, I checked out the the standpipe outlet on the fire floor, right? Because the building was tremendous. So the hallways had to be like 100 feet in either direction, right? So I think to, 
satisfy some code, they put a sandpipe outlet in the middle of the building. And, you know, sure enough, Tony, I looked in, I opened it up. That thing went from uh, from basement to the cockloft, to the top. <laughs> the void ran the whole the whole way, you know? And, you know, sprinklers yeah. are great, but what happens, like you just said, what happens if the, 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 the fire gets into the void space above them, you know? That's what scares the heck out of me. Is the void. And that's going to you know? be well. That's going to be that's going to get back to our risk management discussion, right? Because now, now it becomes that that property fire. Because pretty much, right? I mean, the occupants are probably going to be out, or they'll be protected by sprinklers, and we'll be able to go get them out. So they're, they're, they should survive. And I think that the records, the stats are showing that there's, that fire fire deaths in sprinkler buildings are, are aren't that high. So once the fire gets into the void spaces, it's like, what do we do? Do we continue to fight this thing and chase it around? Do we right. back out and let it, you know, and let it burn? Or do we let it come to us? That kind of thing. So that that's where, and like you said, it's going to be that tough decision that these incident commanders are going to have to make: is do we risk our firefighters in there, or or not for the for the property? Yeah. Um... I, I had made a suggestion to the guys, actually. I told them, I said, take your towel ladder and go in between the floors. And if the fire's in that truss loft, punch a hole in the, in, the, in the little void space and hit it. <laughs> that, was, that was my, yeah. uh, my solution to the, to the void space fires, you know? So, you know, you know what I was thinking about? And I know we were kind of supposed to talk about May Days because I wanted to talk about your May Day Mondays, but we'll get to it. Um, what I think, and I, I got this from the wildland, right? So at a wildland fire, and I've spoken about this before, right? Before they do any operation, they'll say on the radio, is leases in place, right? Leases is lookouts, communication, escape routes, and safety zones, right? And what it means is that before a crew starts working in an area, they, ha- they work in a, in, a, in a hot environment, and the safe area is what they call the black, right? They'll, they'll, they want to make sure they're in the black if something goes wrong. And uh, I was thinking, like, we could apply this in the structural world, you know, like lookouts, right, especially on roof operations, right, because you're on a roof, doors are going, you know, there's a lot of noise, there's just a lot going on. You know, you've got someone putting the roof, you've got someone hopefully God willing behind that firefighter guiding that person, but there should be somebody that is away from the noise, you know, watching everything that's going on, where's the fire, and listening to the communications on, you know, like is there urgent, maydays, anything going on, and there should be a preordained escape route. Like, you know, like I, I'm very big, I want my firefighters to have, like, a second aerial to the roof if they're operating on the roof. Like, there should be one on one side and one on the other side. Or if there's, like, another building they could jump over with a, with a firewall. And that would be a safety zone, right? So I'm very – but I'm thinking to myself, like, why can't we do this with a fire anywhere in the building, right? Maybe one person could be a lookout slash safety officer. Like, we used to have that – it was kind of inherent – like, it was by design in an engine company when we had five firefighters in our engine companies, that firefighter, we called him the door firefighter, 
That was his job. He was a lookout. He would be at the door controlling the, the flow and making sure fire doesn't pass them over their head or and keep track of people going above, you know, and have communication, you know, with the firefighters that are working in front of them, you know. So why can't we apply that Lisi's concept to all aspects of firefighting? I, I I have to um, I have to I mean I guess you have been in the FDNY for a long time so um, right. obviously you you that's the that's your that's your frame of reference which means you have right. like forty guys on a fire don't get me wrong I mean don't get me wrong I right? know it's the uh, bubbles I like I in DC I'll never deny that as I yeah. as I was leaving DC we had two chiefs two chiefs on the on a box. So the first chief was incident commander. The second chief could be, right. you know, whatever you whatever you deem him. And that'd be a perfect job for him, right? Um, That's what we have. We have officer, this like fire sector, right? Like you said, yeah. like you said, the safety officer, right? That'd be a perfect job. But a lot of places, you know, we need, I mean, that one person that to stand back and kind of be the leases or the, the, be, to be the, uh, the, 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 yeah. the monitor needs to have his hands in the job. And, and, um, that that's right. the tough thing. I mean, that's and that's the thing. I mean, all these things, all these things we talk about, right? Rig teams, a safety officer, a lookout. That means we have to have that one other person to be able to kind of give that job to door, even like door control, right? I mean, you have to have people to be able to do that. And um, I think that you know most of us are operating in a um, resource deficit, so we we can't really commit to one person. And I think it's a great idea, right? And that's kind of why. Yeah. Um, again, more people, and, and if we can, if we can commit that, I mean. But it's also, I mean, we could we could impart that into our officer. I think, you know, and it's it's a corny saying, but everybody is a safety officer, right? Everybody is. Yeah. So if we kind of if we kind of um, load up our officers and our firefighters with these things to say, hey, hey, have your head on a swivel, you know, don't get the big eye, pay attention, situational awareness, all of these topics. Or what we need to keep talking about, and um, hopefully, you know, it'll sink home that um, you can't focus. You have to, you have to be able to kind of pay attention to more than just, you know, what's what's right in front of you. I mean, it's it's tough. Yeah. yeah. No, and you know, Tony, I'm very grateful that too that you you bring that up because you know I do live I do work in a bubble. I admit it, but you know maybe a compromise would be. For firefighters that work in a smaller department, so all right, so maybe we're not going to get that one lookout or that communication in place person, but maybe everybody should be thinking about escape routes and safety zones, and maybe that officer that's helping with the stretch, maybe just remind himself not to get too committed to you know being on that line and just I don't know how you would do this, but you know like. Be that guy that's going to be looking at the bigger picture. Yep. Yep. You know, no, I, I agree. That, that's, yeah. that's that's the um, that's the part, right? Is is uh, it's it's a big. It, once you once you once you go from you know being the nozzle man to now being the officer, it's a lot more than just um, you know telling the nozzle man where to point the nozzle. It's also about lookouts communication, escape rooms, and safety, right? It's about all those things. 
Yeah. Like, I, I, it's funny. I had friends. Uh, I, I have friends that were up in New Hampshire, right? And I used to do some training up there with those guys. And, you know, I used to laugh when I listened to them because, yeah, you know, I, uh, I stretched the line and I had the irons in one hand and the on the other hand and then, you know, running up and down, back and forth, you know. And the officers helping stretch the hose line and, and I'm saying to myself, like, what in God's name? I, you know, I, I pull up with four engines, two trucks, a fast truck, a rescue, a squad, another battalion chief, and a deputy chief, you know. And uh, so, you know, it's, it, I guess it's like, I, I always use this analogy, like, you know, when I was a kid, you know, my grandmother would go to the supermarket, you know, and uh, she'd come back with bags of groceries, and I'd be running up and down the stairs with all the groceries. And if I had my friends there, like four of us, we each take one bag, you know. So um, I get it. I get it. And uh, so maybe the takeaway here is not so much having a defined person, but maybe more more so like a uh, an awareness of like because I I I I tell you it happens all the time. I mean, you could get wrapped up in things, and you get before you know it, you're wrapped up in this one part of the fire and. You know, there's other stuff going on, and you're not even paying attention to it. Like, I had this issue, um, I don't know, a few about a month ago, and um, I was so overwhelmed that I actually got on the radio, and I asked the safety officer to come to the rear and help me because I couldn't see the building. You know, I know I had a collapse potential. I knew I had window bars. I'm trying to save this building, you know, and I... I'm using my thermal imaging camera to try to, to follow these firefighters at the same time I'm trying to put this fire out, you know. And, um, you know, you, it's easy to just to get distracted and, like, I could have just focused on one thing and I would have forgot about the, the guys in a collapse zone or whoever, right? So, um, yeah, it, it, it's, um, it's, it's a job that's very easy sometimes to get uh, caught up in things and... and kind of lose your perspective, right? So, and uh, yeah, it sure yeah. is, and yeah. um, that's where uh, that's that's the that's you know we, we want to impart all these things and and make sure the the people are ready to accept that that role when they become officers that they can understand that it's more than just uh, the end of the end of the hose yeah. line or the you know the the room you're searching. It needs to be a little bit bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I wanted to talk about Mayday Monday, but we got wrapped up in this, and we're going to have to save that for the next episode. So I'm going to try one so you're more saying time. We kind of got, we got, uh, we kinda got focused on one thing and didn't get the awareness <laughs> of what was going on around us. <laughs> but this is what I want to happen. I told you that, right? I want yeah. it to be just very first two battalion chiefs, you know. Um, the number is 760-454-8852. And uh, we're just about out of time. So I, I'm going to save that for another time. But I, I did enjoy your class. I, I didn't stay for the whole thing. I had to go see Frank Lee as well. And, uh, you know, but I'm going to save that for another episode because that, that in itself is a whole episode. And we need to, you know, we could talk about that. So, um, yeah, I'd love to talk anyways, about Because, you know, it's a, it's a passion and it's, um, it's, it's got a lot of, I, I think we, you know, we always said we would never forget. And sometimes... As time gets farther away from these incidents, you know, we, we, uh, we tend to forget or, or we tend to, to move on 
or get focused on something else. So I, I just want to make sure that uh, some of these some of these guys who died don't die in vain. Yeah, you know, I'll finish on this though, and then we'll we'll, we'll talk about it the next time. But the most heartbreaking NIOSH report I ever read, and I don't even know where it was. It was somewhere in the Midwest, and I read the report. And as soon as I read it, I knew exactly what had happened because it said in the report that firefighter, whatever his name was, was moving in. And the room flashed over, and he started penciling the fire, the nozzle to put out the fire. And I said to myself, the only place I ever heard anybody use the word pencil besides a classroom was in the flashover can. Because when we train, and I'm guilty of it, I'll raise my hand, I'll be the first one to raise my hand and say I'm guilty of it, is because we're lazy, we don't want to reset the box, we have to... If we put up too much water, then we have to wait, and then we have to sweep it out. So we kind of want to keep the fire burning, right, for the, for the flesh over cans. So we either, I used to use just a two-and-a-half-gallon extinguisher just to kind of knock it back a little bit. And I know that when the, you know, they take the nozzle, they kind of, I, I heard this term, penciling. And then, so what happens, right, when you use that term in the context of a flesh over can, you make this association with flashover with penciling, right? Now, I got caught in a flashover a few times, but this one, I had a hose line with me, and I grabbed the nozzle from the, from the nozzle firefighter, and I opened it up fully, and I pointed it straight up to the ceiling, and I kept it over our heads. And basically, that's what saved our lives, because if we hadn't done that, we, we, probably five of us would have been probably incinerated, you know? And, you know, it just goes back to the way we train, that we should um, play the way we play, you know, train the way we play and vice versa. Because what do you think happened on that one? When, when, when you read an IS report, it says the room flashed over and he started penciling the fire. Where, where would you learn that? I, I mean, he probably read it out of a textbook, unfortunately, um, and you know, if, if his fire academy might be following right along with the textbook, and you know, or they had mm. somebody come in and show them this technique that you know worked somewhere, worked it, like you say, it worked, worked in the fire can. So maybe they replicated it. No, I, I get it. It's definitely, yeah. that's a technique yeah. that we do like to use in the fire can, and that's just kind of to keep the fire at bay, right? Like you said, we're not putting it no, out. Just, we're playing with it. We don't we're want playing to with it to get it to do what exactly. we want to do. We're playing with it. Yeah. Right. We're playing with it. Right. And we got to be careful when we drill on what we do. We, you know, Sean McCain, uh, McCrane, he, he did a, U, a UL, and I loved his little video. It's like you could Google it on YouTube, um, some of these little shorts, you know. But, you know, he talked about the way we train is that, you know, we can't replicate today's fire anymore. Like, when I came on a job... You could throw a few pallets and some hay, and it's almost like the real thing. You know what I mean? But these days, these fires today, I, I don't know. I, I, have, I can't get over some of the way. The, it's like the Austin fires of, of when I was, like, new on the job. But we have to practice stretching and searching and ventilation and laddering and all that other stuff. You know, it's just, it's just playing, like you said. It's just that we, we have to... The mind is crazy because it remembers 
Like it's a muscle memory, you know? And we have to, we can't deviate from that, you know, like from that norm. Like when people are training, they have to remember that what they do in that training ground, may re- they re- may remember it when when it hits the fan, right? So, yeah. but anyway, Tony, thank you for being here again. It's getting late and um, I'm tired. I, I just, I went out my first day fishing t- tonight with my neighbor. We went out, we caught a few stripers, and uh, it's, it's, I tell you, man, there ain't nothing like it being out on that boat and just, uh, even if I don't catch a fish, I'm still having a good time. So, um, anyways, um, with, without, hey, let me without say further thing. ado, I guess. Let me say one thing. Go ahead, Tony. Yeah. Let, let me, I want to, uh, I want to, um, so I'm gonna, if, if you guys, after you get, guys get done listening to this podcast, Swing over there and check out my Mayday Monday podcast. Um, this month, the May Mayday Monday is about what to do when you get the firefighter out. Right? We do all this work rescuing the firefighter. Now, once he's out, now we want to give him the best chance of survival. So come on over. Um, I had Dave Mellon from Valor Fire Training on to talk about this. So give it a listen. Uh, again, it's on fire engineering. You can check it out. It's on their YouTube channel. Um, and uh, it's about an hour long and uh, hopefully you'll like it. And, and uh, thanks again, Danny. I really appreciate you having me on, and I hope to come back. We'll talk about Mayday Monday. Absolutely. Very cool. Thanks, Tony. I'm going to let you go, and then I'm going to wrap it up. Okay. All right. All right, guys. Be safe out there. And uh, if you're looking for me on social media, I think it's the DPS Sandman or Danny Sheridan uh, on Facebook or Instagram. And, um Feel free at any time to um, to contact me. I'll tell you a quick story though before I, I sign off. I gave this the keynote speech, and on Tuesday I had to do a dry rehearsal, and they were about to bring me out on stage, and they played uh, Enter the Sandman. I think it's Metallica. I'm not even sure who sings it. And I looked at the the people from Fire Engineering. I said, you, "Do you realize that is my nickname from the IMT?" <laughs> so. That wasn't. That was just a big coincidence because they played it again on on the day. Uh, I guess it was Wednesday when I gave the keynote, and uh, that was pretty cool, man. They they played the Sandman, and uh, Dave Rhodes says, "And now the Sandman." I'm like, man, I, I felt at home. So anyway, w- without further ado, be safe, and I'll see you on the radio.